Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning. If you're new, we've been in a series walking through the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, two weeks ago, we talked about church discipline. Uh, last week, we talked about people suing each other in church. Uh, don't do that. And uh, this week, thankfully, we have a much easier subject to talk about. Uh, we're talking about sex. Uh, and so 1 Corinthians really just keeps making our job easy, right? Uh, but before we jump into this, I do want to uh, lay out a few things before you. So one, uh, if you're a parent who has some younger kids uh, here in the room, uh, and you're just not ready to have some of these conversations yet, that's okay. Um, take advantage of Veritas Kids this morning. They're still open and would love uh, to receive your child. So uh, I'll tell you, in no way am I going to try to be graphic or inappropriate, but I am going to be frank uh, because Paul is pretty frank uh, throughout this passage. Well, I mean, Technically, he's not Frank, he's Paul, but uh, he's going to be uh, bold and blunt in the way that he talks about sex and sexual immorality. And so, like I said, if you're just not ready to have some of those conversations yet, that's okay. Um, take advantage of that. Uh, but then second, I want to lay out um, that uh, for many, if not uh, most of us in this room, this is going to be a heavy subject. Uh, all of us are coming into this room uh, sexually broken. No one is walking into, into this room sexually whole. Uh, and, and what we're going to see in the passage today is even this acknowledgement that uh, the sex and sexual immorality, that it, uh, there's this really specific and, and, and kind of greater sin, shame and guilt that's tied to sexual immorality. And so I know uh, spending a whole sermon talking about that is probably going to drum up those feelings of shame and guilt uh, for many of us, and so I'm going to come back to this at the end, but from the beginning, uh, what I want you to hear is that the first word that God speaks to us about our sexual sin and our brokenness is actually not about our sexual sin and our brokenness. It's about his love for us. The, the first word you need to hear this morning is that God loves you, and every warning and restriction and boundary and, and safeguard he places around sex is meant to be understood uh, in that context. It's because he loves us and he wants to give to us. He's not trying to take away from us. But I also need you to hear that there is no sexual sin that you have committed or could commit uh, that is more powerful than the cross of Jesus Christ. In verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 6 that we looked at last week and that we're going to look at again today is still true. That sexually immoral is what some of us were, but we were washed. You can be justified. You can be sanctified by the work of Jesus. Jesus can give you a new life and new power and new freedom and new identity to walk free from sexual sin. Uh, to borrow a phrase, at the same time, Jesus, he has both the highest standards of holiness and the deepest grace for sinners who fail to meet those standards, and, and we're going to see both of those realities at work in our text today. And so Paul, uh, he really lays out his main point pretty simply in this passage, so I'm just going to give it to you up front, and then we'll walk through it and kind of expand on it. Uh, and, and I'll just tell you, I, I think it's a pretty radically freeing truth that could transform your life in this area if you'll believe it. And so here it is. Your body belongs to Jesus, so glorify God with your body and in your body. Let's look at this together. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 9, and we'll read all the way through the end of the chapter. And so starting in verse 9, the very word of God to us this morning, it speaks to us like this. Paul says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality 
nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So the first thing we see here, your, your body belongs to Jesus. You should flee sexual immorality. And so Paul begins here in verse 12 by actually quoting what the Corinthians have written to, them, to him in their letter to him. So this is not what Paul is saying. This is what the Corinthians are saying. And he's not agreeing to this. He's responding to it. And so they're the ones saying, yeah, all things are lawful for me. I have freedom in Christ to do what I want. But Paul's responding back and saying, yeah, but, but not all things are helpful and I'm not going to be mastered by anything. You know, if I told you that, that if, if there are Oreos in the house, I'm free to just eat a few of those and stop whenever I want, uh, I'd be lying to you because anytime there are Oreos in the house, I'm like two rows deep into the box before I kind of wake up out of the trance that I'm in and realize how many of these Oreos I have eaten. Uh, and so I, I'm really not free. Like the, those Oreos have mastered me, right? And that's what Paul is saying here. Uh, And Paul's making a really important point here, which is that freedom in Jesus is not freedom to do just whatever you want to do. It's not freedom to satisfy every bodily urge and desire that you have. Freedom is freedom to actually be free and follow Jesus. The next slogan from the Corinthians he takes up, and if you've got an ESV, I think uh, it it stops the quote too soon. I think the Corinthians' whole, whole quote and slogan is, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food and God will destroy both one and the other. Uh, So a lot of the popular philosophy around this time taught that physical stuff like your body was evil, that what really mattered was your soul and your spirit, uh, and that your body's really kind of a prison suit that your soul is trapped in, and so salvation is about your spirit escaping from your body. And, And it seems like the Corinthians have picked some of this up, and so they're saying, Yeah, what we do with our bodies doesn't really matter. What matters is our spirits, so we're free to just do whatever we want with our bodies because they're going to be destroyed anyways. And so they say food's meant for the stomach and stomach for food. They're saying, hey, just like when you're hungry, you eat. Well, when the mood hits, you have sex because it's just a biological need and desire, uh, and your body's going to be destroyed and done away with anyways. And so I'm borrowing a little bit here, but, but to sum up, it seems like the Corinthians' position consists of two things. Uh, one is that sex is just physical, and then two, what you do with your body does not affect your soul. 
But look at how Paul responds to this in verse 13. He says, no, the, the body's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and he's going to raise us up by his power. Like, your body does matter. We are not just brains on a stick or souls trapped in a meat suit. We are a unity of body and soul. Like, you don't have a body. You are an embodied soul. You're a unity of body and soul. And, and not just that, God's not going to do away with our bodies. Just like he resurrected Jesus bodily from the grave, he's going to resurrect our bodies, and we will forever be embodied. I, I mean, even the fact that God would take on a body and take on our humanity in Jesus should be the nail in the coffin proof for all time of how much God values our humanity and values our bodies. And so what you do with your body, it, it matters. It's not meant for sexual immorality. And if you're Jesus, your body belongs to Jesus. It's meant for him. Because Paul goes on as well in verse 15, and he says, don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Now, he's going to expand on this teaching when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, but what the New Testament tells us is that when we come to Jesus, we're united to him, that we become his body, that Jesus is the head, and we as the church are, are his body. And, and so when Paul's talking here about the members of Christ, he's talking about body parts like arms and legs, and so he says, we are the body of Christ, and then he says something wild. He says, should I take the body of Christ and unite it to a prostitute and, and make it one flesh with a prostitute? And of course, the answer to that is no, never, of course not, you shouldn't do that. But Paul says you are doing that whenever you commit sexual immorality with someone because you become one flesh with that person. And then he quotes from Genesis chapter 2 to prove it. And so here's what this means. This means that sex is never just physical. Like, you can try to keep your heart and your soul outside the bedroom all that you want, but you're just not going to be able to compartmentalize in this way. Because sex is not just physical, it also creates this union that is deeply emotional and spiritual as well. The, the reason why is because sex is a sign. And, and what does the sign do? A sign points beyond itself and, and signifies something else. Right, say after this, this afternoon, you were driving up to Raleigh on I-95, and you see that sign that tells you uh, that you need to get off on this ramp to go to I-40 to get towards Raleigh. Well, if you get on that off-ramp, and then you pull off your car under the sign, and you get out under that sign for I-40 towards Raleigh, and you start taking pictures of the sign and camping out under the sign, thinking that you've made it to Raleigh, you miss the point of the sign, right? Well, well the same thing is true with sex. Sex is not just about itself. It's bigger than itself. God designed it to point beyond itself and symbolize our union with himself. That's why Paul says in verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. You see, when we come to Jesus, we are united with Jesus in a union that goes deeper between, than the union between a husband and a wife, a deeper, a deeper union that the union of human marriage and sex is meant to point to. Because in sex, you have this reality of being completely known and vulnerable, right? You've got nothing to hide, but at the same time, you're still being accepted and loved. You are giving yourself completely over to this person, and they are giving themselves completely over to you. That, that's meant to symbolize the whole life commitment and union that we have with God, that all of our lives is his, that he 
is ours, that we are completely known and naked and vulnerable before him. We have nothing we can hide, but yet at the same time, we're still accepted and loved. We know that he is committed to us, that he is not going anywhere. And so because that's how God designed it, sex is never just sex. It, it always creates this union. It always makes you one flesh with this person and pushes you towards one flesh with this person. Uh, and so when you do that, without the uh, commitment of covenant marriage in place, it's going to wreak havoc on you because it's going to keep pushing you further and further towards this union when there are no obligations to go there. I'm borrowing an illustration here, but, but think of it like this. Imagine you were going on a first date, and at the end of the date, uh, the person you're on the date with was like, hey, you want to go back to my place after this and combine our bank accounts? Like, you wouldn't do that, right? Uh, don't do that. If someone does do that on a first date with you, uh, run. You've probably met a psychopath, right? Like, uh, no one does that because we know, hey, we barely even know each other. We have not reached this level of commitment yet, and it would be ridiculous to try to make this level of commitment when we have just met each other. But when you start having sex regularly with someone, you, you start to get these feelings of, well, maybe we should think about moving in together. Maybe we should think about combining our bank accounts. Maybe we really do need to up these commitments because God has designed sex to function as this glue that deepens your union together with this other person. And so when you do that without the safety of covenant marriage and commitment in place, uh, you're just setting yourself up for hurt. Tim Keller puts it like this. He says, even if you are not legally married, when you are having sex with someone, you may find yourself very quickly feeling marriage-like ties, feeling that the other person has obligations to you. But the other person has no legal, social, or moral responsibility even to call you back in the morning. This incongruity leads to jealousy and hurt feelings and obsessiveness if two people are having sex but are not married. It makes breaking up vastly harder than it should be. It leads many people to stay trapped in relationships that are not good because of a feeling of having somehow connected themselves. And, and so the reason that Paul gives us to avoid sex outside of marriage is not because it's so bad, but because it's so sacred. Like Paul is not saying here, stay away from this stuff, it's gross. He's saying keep this in its proper place because it's so powerful. God is not trying to take from us with this. He's trying to protect us. You know, it's kitschy and it's cliche, but some things are cliche just because they're true. Sex is like fire. If you keep it in the fireplace, in the context of covenant marriage, it can warm the house. But when you take it out of the fireplace, it's got the potential to burn your entire house down. And not just that. Paul goes on in verse 18, and he tells us we should flee sexual immorality because every other sin that a person commits is outside the body but the sexually immoral person sins against their own body. You see, since your body now belongs to Jesus, every time you commit sexual immorality, you are both sinning against Jesus and you're harming yourself. Look, because we are not just souls trapped in a meat suit, what we do with our body affects our souls. And when you join yourself physically to somebody by having sex with them, and then that relationship ends, and you have to act like that union that really was there is not there anymore, and over time, that's going to wreak more and more havoc on you. It's just going to keep doing more and more damage to your soul. Again, I'm borrowing a little bit here, but I think we just kind of know this intuitively, that sex is not just physical. 
And for example, the National Domestic Violence Center says that both men and women are less likely to report cases of rape and sexual assault because of the heightened sense of shame and trauma around it uh, than other forms of physical abuse. Like, that's a scenario where they're completely the victim. It's 110% not their fault, but yet there's still that incredibly heightened sense of shame and trauma around it. And if sex is just physical, why is adultery so hard to work through in a marriage? Why can't the spouse who has been cheated on just get over it in a few days if sex is just physical? If sex is just physical, why is it that so many of our areas of deepest shame and regret are centered around it? I know that I would speak for many in here when I say that the areas where I have sinned sexually have been some of the most difficult to work through in the sense of trusting Jesus to take my shame and guilt over those sins away, trusting to believe that those sins really have been forgiven uh, and paid for in the cross of Jesus. And so we know this, that sex is not just physical, and God knows this. He designed it to be this way. And so when he tells us to flee immorality, he's not trying to take from us. He's trying to give to us. And and so in light of all of this, Paul kind of sums up his main point of this section in verse 18 and says, in light of all of this, flee sexual immorality. Don't flirt with it. Run from it. Now, when we talk about what we're being called to flee here, uh, this word that's translated sexual immorality in Greek, it comes from the word porneia, uh, and it refers to all sexual activity outside of heterosexual covenant marriage. And if you notice here, Paul calls it sin. And so here's what I need you to hear. Like, all sexual activity outside of heterosexual covenant marriage is sin. Like your body is not meant for sexual immorality, it's meant for the Lord, and when you use your body to engage in sexual immorality, you are sinning against Jesus and you are hurting yourself. Like this is sin against God. If you're sleeping with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, you're not married in your heart, you're sinning against God. Like, I don't care how you might try to justify it, whatever you might want to say at the end of the day, if you are sleeping with someone and you are not married to them, you're in sin. Like, if you're looking at pornography, that's sin. If you're committing adultery, that's sin. If you're engaged in active homosexual practice, that's sin. And and look, this is going to be one of those areas where it's just really difficult for us to follow Jesus in our day and time and culture because everything in our culture tells us that everything that I just said isn't true, that Love is just love, and that we should be free to love whoever we want, whenever we want, and and do what we want as long as it makes us happy. Like the standard for sex in our culture is not covenant and commitment, it's just consent. And so as long as you both agree to it and and it's going to make you happy, you should be free to fulfill that and pursue that. But look, Paul just told us uh, it's not harmless. Like when you do this, you're, you're harming yourself and you're harming others. And so this is what's going on. This is the reason that Paul tells us in verse 9 not to be deceived about this, not to be deceived that those who are actively walking in sexual immorality and homosexuality are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Like It feels like every time sexual immorality and homosexuality gets uh, talked about in the New Testament, it it comes with this warning. Uh, Romans 1, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, all of them talk about how the wrath of God is coming for those who walk in these sins. 
Ephesians 5, just like 1 Corinthians 6, tells us not to be deceived about this because that's going to be the ever-present temptation, to be deceived and to be, think that sexual sin isn't really sin and it isn't really that big of a deal and we should really be free to do it and God doesn't care uh, about what we do with our bodies. And in our culture right now, there's nowhere where that is more true than with homosexuality. You know, some people would, would read a passage like this and they would try to argue that Paul had no category for, for loving, monogamous, consensual, homosexual relationships. And, and so that's not what he's condemning here. And, and God would actually approve of those, that God would approve of loving, monogamous, consensual, homosexual relationships. They would say that what Paul is condemning here is just abusive homosexual activity, things like grown men uh, sleeping with little boys. Well, here's the problem with that. If that's all that Paul wanted to condemn here, they had a word for that. It's called pederasty, and Paul easily could have used that word if that's all he wanted to condemn. But if you've got an ESV, look down at the footnote for verse 9. It tells us that the two Greek words that are translated as the phrase, men who practice homosexuality, uh, that this refers to both the passive and active partners in consensual homosexual acts. Like, that's what's being condemned here. All homosexual activity, consensual or not, is sin. It's sin against God. But look, I know that for many, if not most of us, you probably haven't ever even heard that argument to try to legitimize homosexuality. For you, the more so, this is personal. Maybe you struggle with same-sex attraction, or you have a friend or a family member who's gay and who's actively involved in a homosexual lifestyle. And so let's, let's make clear a few things. The first is that same-sex attraction is not sin. Just like being physically attracted to somebody of the opposite sex who is not your spouse is not a sin, being attracted to somebody of the same sex physically is not sin. What is sin is acting on that desire and attraction, either through lusting and sexually fantasizing about that person uh, or engaging in sexual activity with that person. But attraction is not lust, and it's not sin. Fantasizing about somebody sexually is sin, and acting out on it is sin. And look, it is just a lie of our culture that if you have a desire, if you have an attraction, then you're just helpless to act out on that. That, that Why should you even try to fight it? Because that's just who you are, and you should be able to do what you feel and what makes you happy. But look, like... Even our culture doesn't believe that absolutely. Because if somebody were to get up and say, well, I'm a pedophile who's really attracted to children, uh, our culture would not say, well, you know, you're right, that's just who you are, Uh, that's your desires, and love is love, so you should be able to do what makes you happy. Uh, You're not going to be able to to hold back from that desire. Like, no, God, no. And, And so everybody actually does understand that our desires don't determine who we are, and that you don't have to act out on your desires, uh, and that there are some desires that you should not act out on. And so I know this is going to sound hard, but I, I need you to hear this. Homosexual activity in all its forms is sin against God, and unrepentant homosexual practice will lead you to not inherit the kingdom of God. The New Testament is crystal clear on this. And so if you as a Christian are telling people the opposite, are telling people that homosexual activity actually isn't sin and God does approve of this, then then I just need you to be honest with yourself about where you're at and you need to admit that the Bible is not your authority. 
that you are your own authority, that you stuck your finger up uh, to discern the cultural winds in which way they were blowing, and you've made that your authority. And please don't be deceived about this by some fool with a TikTok account. We're talking about sins that will lead somebody to not inherit the kingdom of God. And listen, I know, I know that the church has been incredibly hypocritical in this area, that the church by and large has been so quick to condemn sexual sin outside the church while being guilty of things like uh, high rates of no-fault divorce and sexual immorality and sexual abuse within the church. And I also know that purity culture destroyed many of us who grew up under its teaching. And so look, if that's your background, if you grew up into this, I, I need you to hear me. Like you can and de- should deconstruct from purity culture. You can and should deconstruct from the lies of purity culture and the sexual prosperity gospel that it preached to you that if you just stay a virgin until you get married and you save yourself from marriage, then God's going to reward you uh, with an awesome marriage and an awesome sex life and you're never going to fight and you're never going to have struggles and you're not going to get divorced and your life's going to be awesome and God is going to reward you for being such a good boy or such a good girl. You do need to deconstruct from the lie that what God most cared about was whether or not you could check the virgin box off when you got married instead of whether or not he had your heart. You do need to deconstruct from the lie that if you had sex before marriage, then your damaged goods that God and a future spouse really aren't going to be able to love. You can and you should deconstruct from all of that purity culture garbage But at the end of all of that good and right deconstruction, like this passage is still going to be in the book. And and so don't let the false teaching and the hypocrisy of so many in the church distract you and keep you from fulfilling God's call and being obedient to God's call on your life. Because God's not going to judge you for all of that other stuff. You're not going to give an account for that. You're going to give an account of how you responded to his call to you here. Like he's not just addressing people out there, he's addressing you here and telling you to flee sexual immorality because it doesn't lead to life and it doesn't lead to flourishing. And so, because sexual immorality is so damaging, we should flee it. That's strong language, right? That Paul didn't say flirt with it. He didn't say think about it. He didn't say consider whether or not you might need to do this. He said run from it. Think of Joseph running out of Potiphar's house because Potiphar's wife was trying to seduce him. That's the call on our lives here, to take radical measures to get this sin out of our lives. And so let me just give you a few examples of this. If you're dating right now, like it's probably not a smart idea for you to go over to your boyfriend or your girlfriend's house late at night all alone uh, and and think you're going to be able to overcome temptation. You know, there's a reason that the book of Proverbs says that a man can't scoop hot coals onto his lap and not expect to get burned. Like, you're just not that strong. You're not the exception to the rule. You need to know yourself and what's going to be too much of a temptation, and you need to flee those things. Don't put yourself in those situations to fail. Or think about pornography. When, When Paul says in this passage that the sexually immoral person sins against his own body, that's especially true of pornography. Uh, not only is pornography not a victimless crime, when you, you engage in looking at pornography, you're contributing to sex trafficking and the demeaning of the men and women uh, who make pornography. Uh, you're also harming yourself. 
it's been scientifically proven that, that looking at pornography literally rewires the neural circuits in your brain uh, so that you begin to increasingly only be able to view people as sex objects. It literally rewires your brain to where you get to the point that you have to keep seeking further and further extremes to get what you want, to get sexual pleasure. And so because this is so harmful, uh, we should flee it. We should do everything we can to get it out of our lives and, and find freedom from it. And if you want to find freedom from it, one of the first steps to take in this is taking Paul's command seriously here and, and fleeing it. Like, take radical measures against it. I'm talking about, like, maybe you need to consider going back to a dumb phone instead of a smartphone with internet access for a season. I'm talking about maybe you need to get rid of your laptop until it's not so much of a temptation to you. I'm talking about you need to put blockers and filters on your internet access that you don't have the password to, that somebody else has the password to, so that you can't get through them even when you want, even when you want to. I'm talking about taking radical measures. You need to adopt the mentality of whatever it takes, I don't care. I'm going to get this sin out of my life. Like, it, it's either that, it's either adopting radical measures to flee it and fight against it, uh, or you can continue to be trapped in it uh, and just keep harming others and harming yourself. And your body belongs to Jesus, so flee sexual immorality. Next thing Paul tells us in this passage is that we are not our own. So we should glorify God with our bodies. Look again at verse 19. He says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your bodies. Now what Paul just said here is wild. Because if you think back to the Old Testament, the Old Testament teaches us that God is omnipresent. That means he's present everywhere at all places in all times. But uh, the Old Testament also shows us that there's some places where we could say God is kind of maybe especially present or present in a special way. Or maybe the best way to say it is relationally present with his people. And in the Old Testament, that place where God is relationally present with his people was in the tabernacle and, and then in the temple. God lived among his people in the Holy of Holies, the innermost part of the temple. Uh, and so even though God lived among him, uh, there was still a separation because of their sin. Only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies where God most directly dwelt, and only once a year. But the story of the Bible is how God keeps coming closer to us, how he just keeps moving into our neighborhood. And so we flip the pages to the New Testament, and we read in John 1.14 that Jesus, the Word of God, the second person of the Trinity, He takes on our humanity, and it says that He tabernacles among us, that He becomes the temple, the place where God is especially present on earth because He was and He is God in the flesh. But what 1 Corinthians 6 is telling us is that now, through Jesus, because we have been united to Jesus and have been given His Spirit we are now the temple. We are now the place on earth where the Spirit of God most especially dwells. So that if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know where to find God on the earth, you gather together with the church. And so, so realize what this passage is saying. Your body has become a temple of the Holy Spirit. God lives inside you. The Spirit of God has made His dwelling inside of you. Your body is sacred space. 
And this passage did not say that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. If you've been good enough and you've cleaned yourself up enough to make yourself fit to be a dwelling place for Him, no, it says that this is a gift of salvation that God gives you when He saves you. The Spirit of God is sent from God to come live inside your heart. You don't qualify yourself to be worthy to be His temple. Because you didn't purchase yourself. Did you notice that? Paul said you're not your own. You were bought with a price. And so look at the value that God has placed on you. You are not worthless. You are bought with a price. And God has seen fit to make his home on earth inside of you. And so here's what I need you to hear. Here's the good news of the gospel that I need you to hear. I know that many, if not most of us, are walking into this room with all forms of sexual baggage. And I know that for many of us, walking through this text and talking through this has, has probably been really difficult and has had some hard and convicting things to say to us. That Maybe there's even some areas where this passage has revealed uh, that you're living in sin right now. And listen, we need to sit with that. Like it is sin and God calls us out of it and calls us to a better way. But the good news is not just that God calls us to a better way, it's that he makes a better way. You, you see, remember, at the same time, God has both the highest standards of holiness and the deepest grace for sinners who fail to meet it. And, and so for all of us in this room who are sexual sinners and failures, hear the good news of the gospel. If you have trusted in Jesus, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. You don't belong to yourself anymore. You belong to Jesus. And go back to verse 11. Sexually immoral is what some of us were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were washed. That's both past tense and passive. Past tense, it's already happened, and passive, it was something that was done to you. Like, you did not wash yourself. You did not justify yourself. You did not sanctify yourself. God washed you. God sanctified you. God justified you. And so, yeah, you may have gotten yourself into this mess, but Jesus can and will get you out of it. You can be washed. You can be washed clean of all of your shame and guilt and sexual sin so that you don't have to wear it and carry it anymore. This is what we're about to symbolize in baptism. In baptism, we picture and celebrate the reality that when we come to Jesus, he unites us to himself and we're united to him in his death and he buries our sins in the grave and then he raises up to us up to new life with him and he leaves our sins in his grave so that we don't have to walk in them anymore. And you were sanctified. That means set apart and made holy for God. God made you fit to be a dwelling of his spirit. You were justified. That means declared righteous before God. That means that no matter how dark or deep or extreme your sexual sin is, when God looks at you now, he does not see the depths of your sin. He sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus, and you are acceptable to God because Jesus has paid for every single one of your sins, past sins, present sins, future sins you haven't even gotten around to committing yet. They've been paid for in full. You're not your own anymore. You don't belong to yourself. You've been bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus, and you belong to him now. And this is on the table for anyone in here. I don't care how you walked into this room. I don't care what sort of sexual brokenness and baggage you're bringing into this room. 
you can be washed, you can be justified, you can be sanctified, you can know what it means to not have to belong to yourself any longer, but to belong to Jesus. Man, don't you want that? Don't you want the freedom of not having to belong to yourself anymore, not having to make meaning and identity and happiness and purpose for yourself? You can have it. It's here for you in Jesus. If you'll just turn from your sin and put your trust in him, he'll do this in your life. He will save you. You heard it earlier in the gathering, but this is why we've modeled one of our questions that we ask every person being baptized off the Heidelberg Catechism because this is what's happening in salvation. Now, that's Heidelberg, so don't think Heisenberg like Breaking Bad. This is the Heidelberg Catechism, a little bit earlier than that. But listen to these first two questions and answers in full. I mean, this is just so beautiful. Question one, what's your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all of my sins with his precious blood, and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. And then the second question, what do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Answers three things. First, how great my sins and misery are. Second, how I'm delivered from all my sins and misery. Third, how I'm to be thankful to God for such deliverance. This is our great comfort and hope that we are not our own, but that we belong body and soul, all of ourselves, all to Jesus. That he loves us, that he has purchased us, that he has paid the debt in full for our sins so that we could be forgiven of them and be free from them, to not have to walk in them any longer. And so here's what I want to encourage you with. The, the Bible tells us that God is life itself, that eternal life is not a place you go to. It's not this life just continued on for, for all of time. Uh, eternal life is life with God. It's knowing the only true God. And so in salvation, what God is doing is he's giving us participation in his life, in Jesus. We get to share in eternal life. So eternal life, it starts right now for all of us who follow Jesus. And, and so when God calls us away from things like this, when he calls us away from sexual immorality, uh, it's not because he's trying to take from us. It's because he's trying to give us a share and participation in his life. Like, Knowing him and obeying him and following him is life. Everything else we give ourselves over to, the sin we give ourselves over to, is death. And so fleeing sexual immorality, it's not about following rules. It's about sharing in the life of God. And you've been given the Spirit. The Spirit has been sent to live inside you and empower you to walk in Jesus' life and share in God's eternal life. And, and so do this by the power of the Spirit Glorify God in your body. Walk in Jesus' life and share in God's eternal life. Well, how do you do that? Well, well every question, every decision to, to sin or not sin sexually, it really comes down to a deeper question and issue, and it's the question of, will I trust God? Will I trust that God actually is life itself, that he really does know what's best for me, that he really is trying to give to me and lead me into life and flourishing, that, that his way really is best for me? The more the answer to those questions is increasingly yes, 
the more that sexual sin is going to increasingly lose its power in your life. And so you've got to get your eyes on Jesus, on the good news of the gospel and who he is and what he's done for you so that you might grow uh, in your trust of him and you might know increasingly more that he is uh, an incredibly good God. And then two, if you're... um, and if you're walking through right now an addiction to pornography or you're just trapped in sexual sin that you feel like you just cannot get out of, like, hear me, I, I understand. And I, I know the despair of spending years trapped in a sin like this and, and not even be able to imagine for yourself what life would be like to be if you were free of this sin. Not even be able to uh, hope and dream for yourself that you could live life free from this sin. And if, if that's your story... This passage is telling you, don't believe the lies and don't despair. Like, yeah, you're not going to be able to change yourself. You're not going to be able to get yourself out of sexual sin, but Jesus can. Jesus can set you free and cause you to walk in the newness of his life. Like, don't believe the lies and don't despair. Ephesians 5 tells us that Human marriage uh, and and sex, it just points beyond itself to the true marriage of Jesus and his church. And it tells us that Jesus, he loves his bride, he loves the church, and he washes her with the water of his word, and he sanctifies her, he makes her look more like himself, he cleanses her, uh, and he grows her. And it says that the day is coming when he will present the church to himself blameless, without spot or blemish or wrinkle or any such thing. And look at me, you're included in that. And so I, no matter how dark it's got, no matter how trapped you are, the good news is Jesus can and will take you into communion and union with himself and make you new. Yeah, there's no reason in the world to hope in yourself, but there's all the reason in the world to hope in Jesus. And because he wants this freedom for you. He wants you to be sexually whole. And you don't belong to yourself anymore. You belong to him. And so he gets the final say over your life. And he's not going to leave you. And you can live for him now. Now, none of that is saying that this is going to be easy. It's going to require radical measures. It's going to look like uh, taking radical steps and getting accountability so that people can pray for you and keep you accountable and help you. It's going to mean carving out time to spend time with Jesus in his word and in prayer so that your affections and desires might be cultivated from him and away from this sexual sin, like it's not going to be an overnight process, but real freedom from sexual sin is available to you in Jesus. Like the good news this passage tells us is that God is calling us into life and light and freedom, his life and his light and his freedom, and we just get to walk in it. And so here's what we're going to do. Um, the band is going to come back up here, and we're going to respond to Jesus' grace. 